tonight I wanted to talk uh, primarily about mindfulness, which may sound like a rather obvious subject, but I think it's uh, one that is worth discussing in some detail. Our practice, Vipassana practice, insight meditation is often called mindfulness practice or the cultivation of mindfulness. And I think it's really important to get a sense for just what this mental quality, this mental factor really is. Because it's really, it's, it's a very simple quality of mind, but it has a, a possibility for profound transformation. It can really open the door to the entire path of practice. It's really the foundation of our, our actual meditation practice. So it's very key for us to get a sense for just what the qualities of mindfulness are, I think. There's a verse from uh, the Dhammapada, which is translated in different ways. I know Gil has done a translation of the Dhammapada. It's a collection of uh, teachings in verse form, rather pithy uh, instructions and teachings about the Buddhist path. And there's one rather well-known stanza from that. That uh, This is one way it's translated. It says, mindfulness is the path to the deathless. Heedlessness, the path to death. The mindful do not die. The heedless are as if already dead. Kind of strong words from the Buddha pointing to the power of mindfulness. And there's another place in the Samyutta Nikaya, another collection of of the Buddhist discourses, the suttas, where the Buddha said, mindfulness, I declare, is all helpful. And in the Anguttara Nikaya, yet another collection, he said, all things can be mastered by mindfulness. And one more reference in the uh, beginning and again reiterated at the end of the Satipatthana Sutta, which is really the, the main teaching in terms of actual meditation instructions that we draw on for Vipassana practice. It's the discourse on what's called the four foundations of mindfulness. Some of you may have studied this teaching. But at the beginning of it, he said, mindfulness of these four foundations, these four spheres for our attention, is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and discontent and suffering and for the realization of Nibbana, that is, for the realization of, of true freedom and ease that's not dependent on the conditions of our life. So this is high praise in all these cases for mindfulness. The word in Pali, the language that the Buddha spoke, in India at that time, in that part of India where he lived, is called Pali. It's spelled P-A-L-I. And it's like a colloquial version of Sanskrit. It's an ancient language. It's not spoken anywhere these days except by Buddhist scholars. It was preserved in the, the Buddhist teachings. The earliest teachings are preserved in the Pali language. And the word for mindfulness is sati. And I know there's the sati Center is part of what happens here. 
And this word sati is related to a verb, sarati, which means to remember. And in a great way, in a really important way, the function of mindfulness is very directly connected to the function of memory. And in the most obvious way, mindfulness is this ability to remember the present moment, to remember to be present right now, right here, right now. So it's really this quality of mind that brings us to the present moment. We could call this a kind of presence of mind that is a function of mindfulness. And implied in this presence of mind is that it exists in pretty much direct opposition to absent-mindedness, to this kind of heedlessness that was spoken about in that verse from the Dhammapada, has the quality of dispelling absent-mindedness. So when one is endowed with or possessed of mindfulness, when mindfulness is strong in the mind, then we're wide awake with regard to the present moment. We're not lost in thoughts of the past or projections into the future. Not caught up in our usual habits of mind. We're really wide awake and very present. And there's another key quality of mindfulness that also relates to memory, which has to do with the fact that mindfulness has a broad and open kind of attention as opposed to a narrow attention. In some discourses, the absence of mindfulness is related to a narrower, constricted kind of mind state, whereas the presence of mindfulness is described as leading to a broad or even a boundless state of mind. And we can see this in our, in our lives or in our practice. If we're really caught or focused with some kind of, maybe there's something that we're really concerned or worried about, something we're thinking about a lot, and our focus can get very narrowed and almost obsessively caught up in one thing in that way. And with mindfulness, it opens the field more. So it doesn't have this feeling of constriction, of narrowness. There are some similes in the suttas that describe this in kind of an interesting way in terms of images. In one case, it's a story about a cowherd. Most of us don't think about cowherds very much. We don't have a lot of cows in our lives, probably. But in India at that time, herding cattle was a big part of how people made their living. And in this simile in the suttas, it said that a cowherd had to pay very close attention to his cows at a time when the crop was ripening in the fields to keep them from straying into the fields where the crop is still ripening. But once the crop was harvested, he could sit under a tree and relax and watch them from a bit more of a distance. And the word sati, the word for mindfulness, was, is used to describe this kind of expansive, more open and relaxed kind of vision. There's another simile 
where the practice of the four foundations of mindfulness was compared to climbing up on an elevated platform or a kind of viewing tower and having that kind of wide, expansive view from a higher place. And again, sati, mindfulness used, pointing to this open, broad, kind of expansive quality of mind. There's another way that mindfulness relates to memory that a lot of us, I think, could relate to, and it's a kind of quality of relaxed receptivity. And I know for myself, and probably many of you have noticed, there might be a time when you're trying to recall some incident or fact or something from your past that you really want to relate to someone or, or bring to your mind for some reason. You're really trying to retrieve this information. And the harder you try, the less you're able to to even get close to it. But if you drop it completely and allow the mind to relax and become more open and receptive, often sometimes it's when we're about to lie down to take a rest or something, and the information just springs spontaneously to mind when we aren't looking for it. So it's that quality of relaxed receptivity that allows memory to function really well. It's the same quality that we bring with mindfulness. Mindfulness has this kind of relaxed, receptive quality. It's not going after experience. It can be very, very subtle. I know for myself in practice, it can be extremely subtle times when the mind is is maybe hypervigilant almost, or it's really poised or almost anticipating experience in a way, rather than settling back and allowing it, things to arise. They're going to arise anyway, whether we think we're allowing them or not. And so we have this receptive quality of mind where we're allowing experience to flow. And all we do is bring enough energy to be present and know what's going on. So there are these qualities of remembering the present moment, this kind of presence of mind, which exists as an antidote to absent-mindedness, There's this breadth of focus, this wide open kind of focus that's all inclusive. It's not constricted to a single thing or an obsessive kind of thought or habit of mind. And this feeling of relaxed receptivity, of allowing experience to flow. There's another quality of mindfulness that's really, I think, kind of amazing in a sense, is that it has an ability to gather together or allow for the emergence of other wholesome qualities in the mind. Mindfulness, this word sati, appears on a lot of lists. Buddhism is full of lists, the three of this and the four of that and the five of this and on. There's one place where it's collected up and you can read all of those things. One of these lists is the uh, list of what are called the seven factors of awakening or the seven factors of enlightenment. And mindfulness is the first of these. It's listed as the first. And it's said to be the only one of the seven that you cannot have too much of. So we, and it's hard if you think about it. It's, 
it's hard to imagine being too mindful. Not sure what that would be like. Um, you know, there's always room for, for more of that quality of being present and awake. And the other six qualities of these seven factors of awakening are divided into energizing factors and calming or tranquilizing factors. And it's said that mindfulness has the function of actually gathering these together, allowing them to emerge and come into the mind, and also of balancing them. Because if the energizing factors are strong in relation to the calming, tranquilizing factors, it often leads to a kind of restlessness, agitation in the mind. Mind can tend to wander or go into a lot of thinking when there's a lot of energy, excessive energy. And on the other hand, if calming or tranquilizing factors are are out of balance and too strong, then we often fall into a kind of sleepiness or dullness, kind of sinking mind that happens. But mindfulness has the function and ability to balance these, bring them into balance. The kind of relaxed receptivity that I mentioned already points to a quality of non-interfering that is really a key characteristic of mindfulness as well. There's nowhere in this in the teaching, for example, of the Satipatthana Sutta, the main teaching on foundations of mindfulness. There's nowhere in there where we're told to actively interfere with our experience or whatever is arising in the mind. We're not taught to try to change that or do something about it. Even in the case where it might be a very difficult or unpleasant or even unwholesome mind state that might arise. For example, in the case of what are called the hindrances, many of you may have heard of these these qualities in the mind called the hindrances. They're factors that arise in the mind that hinder our ability to, to meditate, our ability to concentrate, our ability to really be present with our experience. And they're basically manifestations of either a kind of greed or wanting in the mind or a manifestation of an aversion of kind of pushing away or backing away from experience or of a confusion or delusion, confusion in the mind. So these there are five of these hindrances. There's a craving for sensual desire, sensual pleasure, sense pleasure. There's aversion, pushing away of experience. There's what's called sloth and torpor, like these archaic expressions. We don't think of ourselves as having a lot of sloth or torpor very often, but it points to a kind of sleepy, dull quality in the mind or often a kind of stubborn, stuck quality in the mind. And then there's restlessness and doubt. These are the five hindrances. But even when things like this arise in the mind, in the teaching we're told to be aware that they're there, if possible to be aware of what led to them arising, and if we can know what might lead to their disappearance. These are good things to 
bring our attention to, but we're not told to try to get rid of them actively. So there's this non-interfering kind of quality that's uh, a function of mindfulness. This points to a kind of uninvolved and detached receptivity, not detached in the way that we're cool or indifferent, but detached in the way that we're we're bearing witness in a sense, you could say. We're not so pulled into our um, reactive habits of mind or our likes and dislikes. This kind of uninvolved receptive stance is sometimes called choiceless awareness. And our awareness is choiceless in that we're, we're impartial. We're not preferring one thing over another. We're not reacting in terms of our likes and our dislikes so much. So mindfulness doesn't have this kind of partiality or selective nature. It's not saying, well, I'll pay attention to this, but not to that. So this allows us some space around our experience. So much of the time, especially with strong emotional states or patterns of thought that are are really grabbing our attention or that we're obsessing about at times, things like this that come so much in the mind, we often can become very caught up in that and not be able to see clearly what's really going on. But when we bring mindful, when we bring our mindful attention, it has this quality inherent in it that gives us a little space, allows us to step back just a little bit from our experience. And we can see the whole situation with a little more clarity. And we can even begin to see our subjective relationship to our experience. So this kind of uninvolved receptive stance, it's kind of a middle path in that it doesn't go towards either a kind of suppression of something that is unpleasant or we feel is unwholesome or not useful or towards, on the other extreme, getting caught in our reactions and habitual responses to things. We have kind of a middle path where we're we're stepped back a bit, we have a little more space, and we can really see what's going on. So it has a, sort of, a kind of sober quality that follows from that, in that we, we're not intoxicated by our experience. I remember recently I, there was something that I was convinced I really wanted. <laughs> And I was you know, researching it a lot on the internet, things like that, and uh, thinking about it a lot. And at a certain point, it felt like a kind of intoxication almost. And maybe some of you can relate to that feeling when we get sort of uh, almost obsessed with, in this case, my description of something that I really wanted. But it could, it could happen in a different sort of way, but this feeling of, it's almost like this intoxication. We keep coming back to it again and again and again. The mindfulness can cut through that in any moment. In any moment that we really come and are present, 
it has the tendency to cut through that kind of intoxication that we have with our often with our thoughts or our emotional life. Sometimes this kind of non-reactive, receptive attention is called uh, bare attention. And I really like that that idea. In the Satipatthana, it said, mindfulness is present for bare attention. And the way the attention is bare is that we're not adding anything to our experience. We're not adding anything onto what's going on in our life, in our meditation, when mindfulness is present. It's this kind of bare attention that sees things just as they are. So we're not adding on our likes and dislikes so much. We're not adding on a lot of thinking. And this allows us some freedom from habitual patterns of reactivity that are in the mind that we, we often don't see. They, they function almost automatically. Things we've practiced for a long time. Habitual patterns in the mind. But with mindfulness, we see our experience just as it is. It's not, it's not adulterated by our usual mental habits. And we actually can begin to see these tendencies. Tendencies of going towards pleasant kinds of experience, for example, or pushing away of things that we don't like. Or habits of anger, perhaps. Resentment that may be in the mind that aren't so useful. Having a little space around this kind of thing and beginning beginning to be able to see habitual patterns in the mind, just this awareness itself brings a certain kind of freedom. Because we're not just living our lives out of old conditioning. We're able to make wise choices because we're able to see what's really useful in the moment, what really serves us, what's skillful and what will help to bring us more ease and will bring more ease into the world around us. What's really useful. We can assess our situation, our circumstances, our lives with a bit more calm, with some clarity of seeing. And this can lead us to more wise and appropriate action. We can do something that's useful and skillful rather than just reacting out of our old conditioning and habits. So mindfulness has a lot of wonderful qualities in this way. It has this kind of alert presence of mind. There's a calm, receptive quality to mindfulness that's not reactive. It's not intoxicated with our obsessive thinking or our emotional life. It has some space, can see things in a broader scope. It gathers together these wholesome qualities of mind. So we have this wonderful tool. So what do we do with it? You know, in and of itself, it's great, but it's good to have a sense of, of what what mindfulness functions, how it functions in terms of our our insight, development of insight. 
And with mindfulness meditation, with vipassana meditation, we bring this receptive, alert, present, non-reactive kind of quality that is present with mindfulness. We bring this to the entirety of our experience. So, for example, in the Satipatthana Sutta, everything that we experience in the body and the mind is broken down into four broad categories. So there's nothing that's left out. It's not like there's something in our lives that we are not able to bring mindfulness to or that's not useful. The entire field of our body and mind is available for us to bring our attention to and we begin to pay attention and see things in great, more and more fundamental kinds of levels. We're moving from, one could say, a more conceptual realm of seeing and understanding to a kind of precognitive place that sees things in their more, more fundamental way. It's like peeling away layers of an onion. We peel things back to the core. And it's, I think it's really wonderful that we have the entire field of our experience to pay attention to and that there's no, there's no hierarchy. It's not like one thing is more useful or better to pay attention to than another thing. I think this, is, this has been, for me, one of the hardest things to learn about in meditation because we're so conditioned to think that certain kinds of experience, usually pleasant ones, are better or more valuable or more useful. And if we have a sitting meditation period where things get kind of nice and quiet and calm and easy, or maybe are even a little bit blissful, we think, well, this is, now I've got it. This is what I want to look at. You know, we, we move towards that. There's that tendency in the mind to move towards that. And if we have a sitting meditation or circumstance in our life where there's a lot of discomfort or things are not going so well or we're having a hard time or the mind is filled with anger or craving, we, we kind of write that off. Oh, well, maybe next time or we push that away. We don't want to bring our attention to that. But in terms of our practice, anything that comes up from the most kind of gross body sensation of pain in the knee or the leg or the most um, difficult emotional state or obsessive thought pattern to the most sublime, light-filled, beautiful, meditative experience, in terms of mindfulness practice, they're just as valuable. And sometimes the difficult ones are actually a little more valuable because we have a little more incentive to look into them, explore them, and, and understand them, because we're suffering with that. You know, if we had only pleasant experiences, and this is what they talk about, deva realms, but if one's experience is only pleasant, there's not a whole lot of motivation to really look too deeply into that.
And there's another really wonderful thing that follows from this, I think, gives me a lot of hope, is that we don't have to attain some exalted or special state of mind in order to deepen in practice, in order for insight to arise, and in order for us to really come to a place of greater freedom and ease in our lives. It's not like we have to have some special state. You know, sometimes we think we have to meditate till we get a certain kind of really calm, special state. But it's not necessary. We could go to the complete end of the path without ever having a really groovy meditative experience. It's nice to have those and they refresh the mind and they, they can bring us a lot of, they can bring a lot of good and a lot of uh, joy and faith can arise. But they're not essential in terms of our ability to practice and to deepen. We bring our attention to whatever is arising in the moment and we bear witness to this. We're not judging it. We're not valuing one thing over another. And so as we begin to practice in this way and to see things in a more fundamental way, for example, in terms of, say, our our experience of the body, rather than thinking about our body or our image or what we see in the mirror, relating in that kind of way, we look more at the elemental nature of the body. So, for example, right now, you can, those of you who have your eyes closed or if you want to let your eyes gently close just for a second and feel what, what is the experience of body in any moment. What do we experience? You know, we don't experience our face or arms or the way we look, our hair color or those kinds of things. We experience a, a changing flow of sensation. You can... Open your eyes if you want. There's that. There's a flow of sensation. There's hardness or softness or heat or cold or movement, tension, pressure, things like that. That's what's really there when we experience the physicality of our life. These kind of elemental qualities. We can begin to see also in terms of sensations in the body and also feelings and sensations in the mind that everything has a quality of either a slight pleasant or strong pleasant or an unpleasant feeling tone. There's a tone of that that we can begin to pay attention to or neutral. Neutral is a little harder to see. But usually everything, if we sit for a moment we we feel the body, there'll be Maybe pleasant sensations of lightness, or maybe unpleasant sensations where the, there's hardness or tension or tightness. And we can see the movement of the mind in response to this quality of either pleasant or unpleasant, or even neutral. We see we tend to want the pleasant, we go for that. We tend to want to push away or get rid of or somehow avoid things that are unpleasant. And when things are neutral, we tend to either become bored or not notice them or fall asleep. So there's that tendency in the mind. It's not saying that it's we're not judging any of this. We just begin to notice things in that way. With thoughts and emotions and mind states, we begin to notice their insubstantial nature. 
you know, we see how much power they have in our lives, but then when we really turn our attention just on them, not on their content, but on the, the quality of, of these things in the mind, we may we'll see that there, there really isn't much there. There's not much to them. And we also can begin to see them in terms of what's wholesome and what's not wholesome in the mind. So it's not so much the content, but it's the actual qualities, the, the unique qualities and characteristics that these things have. At times we may even just begin to rest our attention just in the knowing quality of the mind itself. I mean, it's kind of amazing to think there's this knowing that just happens. What is that? Where does it happen? Where is the mind? You know, we don't have to do anything to know. With mindfulness, we come and we're present and we're more, we know more clearly what's going on, but the actual knowing of experience happens on its own. I mean, try not knowing. Can you do that? Can you not know? Don't know the sound of my voice right now. Can you, can you make that happen? I mean, you could plug your ears or try to do that. But experience arises and it's known just automatically. We don't have to use any energy for that. And with meditation, as we practice more and more, we can begin to rest more in that field of just awareness itself. So we see things in terms of their qualities and characteristics, as I've just been explaining. And then we also begin to see what are universal characteristics that are shared by all, all things that arise in, in experience. Everything has its unique quality, these elemental qualities of sensations in the body, for example, or the insubstantial qualities of thoughts and emotions and their wholesome or unwholesome characteristics. But all of these things share three universal qualities that are the same. Everything in our experience has the tendency to change. There's nothing that stays constant for any length of time at all. And we can see this in broad ways just in our lives and changing of seasons or changes over the course of a day and the temperature and in those kinds of broad brushstroke ways of change in our lives. But we, as we meditate, we see nothing lasts for any length of time at all. Everything is constantly in a state of flux. Our thoughts constantly arising and going away. Sensations in the body, even a sensation of real hardness that might be in the body, if we pay attention to it, we'll see it's, it's constantly changing and fluctuating. There's nothing in our experience that has any real lasting ability. It's all in a state of flux. And if we look more and more closely, we see it's arising and passing very, very quickly far more quickly than we can imagine. And this is true of every experience, from the most gross to the most subtle. It's all got this impermanent, changing nature that applies to all experience across the board. And as we pay more attention, we notice this, we see that there's nothing in this constant change of experience that we can really hold on to to bring us any really lasting kind of happiness 
or lasting satisfaction? How can something that's constantly changing bring us a lasting kind of happiness or satisfaction in our lives? You know, we can set things up to be as perfect as possible, but it can change in any moment, and it does. I mean, how often, you know, we go to great lengths to set up our lives so that everything is groovy and going to go great. And then something happens and it falls apart. There's nothing that we can do in that regard to make it stay steady enough so that we can count on it to bring us a kind of happiness that won't change. So there's this quality of unsatisfactory or this inability of, of changing experience to bring us a lasting happiness. Happiness comes and goes. So the, there's this anicca, impermanent quality, and this quality of dukkha, of unsatisfactoriness that, that flows from this very quality of impermanence. And we also begin to see that there's an un- uncontrollable, coreless quality to things. Things happen due to causes and conditions. And we can't make it, we can't make experience, we can't bend, bend it to our will. If we could, we would all just say, I'm going to be only happy from now on. That's the way it's going to be. We'd set it up. We wouldn't need to come here. And we'd be doing great. But nobody has the ability to to make things be the way they want them to be. You know, it, things happen due to causes and conditions. And if we act with skill and and we bring more attention and wise discernment to our lives, then usually things flow a little better. And if we don't do that, then things tend to go in the opposite direction. And we can see this as a natural a natural flow in our lives. But there's this kind of coreless, selfless quality to experience in that it's not controllable. It's not amenable to our will. So this anatta, this coreless, uncontrollable quality. So there's these three universal characteristics and we begin to see those more and more clearly as we practice. We see that all of this happens and it's just this natural flow of things. We see that it happens due to causes and conditions. It's like the law of nature. You know, we we look out and if we go out in the woods or by the ocean or out in nature and we see this change and we see things happening due to causes and conditions and change of seasons and it gets cold and leaves fall and all these things and we, we don't have any trouble with that as a natural process. But we tend to hold ourselves somehow apart from that. But as we meditate and our practice unfolds, we see that our own experience has this very same quality. It's this natural process. There's a Thai forest teacher who's no longer living and from the last century named Ajahn Buddha Dasa. Some of you may have heard of him. Wrote a number of books. One beautiful one called Heartwood of the Bodhi Tree. And somewhere in one of his writings, he said, 
what we do with, in this practice, what we're doing with this practice is we're giving back to nature what we mistakenly appropriated as our own. And I really love that, that way of, of looking at practice. It's as though we've taken on this kind of burden of trying to govern and control and do our lives in a way. And we've, we've lost our ability to see that it's this natural process that's, that unfolds due to its own natural law, due to causes and conditions. And it's not that we become passive and don't take appropriate wise action and try to make our lives and the lives of those around us as good as possible. And we, we relate with compassion and kindness and we, we bring as much fine attention as we can to our conduct because we see that the natural flow that follows from that. So we give this back to nature. We lay down, it's a kind of burden that we lay down. And as we, as we become more and more clear in this way, there's a transformation that begins to happen. And in a way, nothing changes, and yet everything changes completely for us in our lives. And we begin to discover a kind of freedom as we turn our life more and more over to natural law and process, we find a kind of freedom, begin to discover a kind of freedom that is not dependent on the conditions of our life. A kind of ease, a true ease, that doesn't depend on things being a particular way a kind of ease that can exist even when things are not going so great. And that's a true freedom, a freedom that is independent of the conditions of our lives because the conditions, we can only have so much to say about that. You know, the conditions of our lives flow along and there's praise and blame and there's fame and disrepute and all these kinds of worldly, the eight worldly conditions that come and go and we can do our best and and get things pretty good, but it's going to unfold as it does. And all of the causes that fall, that feed into that are really hard to, we'll never understand them all, see them all. We can't control them. So we find a kind of ease through this exploration in our practice that isn't dependent on things being a certain way. So I'm going to end with just a uh, one little few lines out of a long poem by T.S. Eliot from uh, The Four Quartets. This is from Little Gidding. Maybe some of you are familiar with this poem. But I think it points to this quality of exploration in a kind of beautiful way. He wrote, we shall not cease from our exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. And this is really what our practice is like. We come back to where we started. It's not like we go some brand new place. Everything is the same. We still have to chop wood and carry water as it were. We have to live our lives. 
But we come, we arrive there, and we know it for the, as though it was for the first time. So let's just sit quietly for just a minute and then we'll have time for a few questions if there are any. I'll ring the bell in a few seconds. Thank you all for your kind attention this evening. And if anyone has a question or comment, I open the floor to you all. Um, During our meditation exercise, Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure whether you were suggesting that we um, focus on our body in its expansive way and then move to a point of... um, our body touching something and then move to the words uh, you know relax the body relax the mind were you suggesting a cycle or uh? I'll, I'll speak about it I may not have been so clear I found recently well for a long time now I would say but sometimes at the beginning of a setting or maybe once or twice during it I'll bring to mind the words relax the body relax the mind just to remind myself uh, to pay attention in that way, to notice, am I leaning into the moment? Am I, am I bringing extra effort, unuseful, too much effort? And to notice the quality of the mind. Is the mind grabbing at, going after experience, or is it settling back in a more receptive stance? So that's how I meant to use that kind of thing. It's just maybe once at the beginning of a sitting period or perhaps once or twice during a sitting period if it's, if it's useful. Just very gently in the mind, just to bring our attention there, pay attention in that way, what's happening in the body in that way of is it relaxed or not, in the mind as well. And then with the sitting touching practice, I was offering that as an alternative to, say, the breath as a place to anchor the attention. And you might find that useful for maybe the duration of a sitting or maybe just for a time. But the idea with that is that we we focus on the sort of broad feeling, like you described, an expansive feeling of the whole body sitting. So not focusing on a particular place, but the feeling of the uprightness of the posture, the feeling of supportedness, or however you can feel, okay, the whole body sitting. And you stay there for two or three, five seconds. And if it's useful, you can use a soft mental note label of sitting, sitting, just very, very lightest possible whisper in the mind, like less than a half a percent of your attention there, just really light. And then moving from that to a very specific touch point, like the hands touching, or possibly the lips, or maybe the where you contact the chair, some very specific place. So it's kind of going from a broad field to a a more precise kind of attention. Again, still keeping that relaxed stance, relaxed, receptive quality of mind, but just moving the attention between those two. So back and forth like that. And again, with the touching sensation, you would actually 
if you were using the noting, you could note touching, touching very gently in the mind for that. And then back to sitting, sitting, and then touching, touching. So moving back and forth between those two. And it's something you could just try and see if it's useful, see what happens with that. I have found at times that it's very, very useful, especially if I'm tending towards a kind of sleepy dullness in mind, having that little little task can bring a little energy. As well, if the mind is really going all over the place, having that kind of little task rather than just being with, say, the breath, for example, can sometimes help to collect the mind a bit. So you can just try it and see. But I found at times that it's been very, very useful to me. And I think it's it's good to have a bag of tricks. Like sometimes it's really, really useful just to focus on hearing for a time. Because hearing has uh, a quality of being, there's a real receptive way that we have to be with hearing or that we naturally are with hearing. Because we don't have, you don't have to do anything at all, right? You don't even have to find with the breath, you have to say, oh, is it here, is it here, you know, and kind of connect with it a little bit. We have to make a certain kind of effort to really figure out, especially at first, what's happening with the breath and how we notice it. But with hearing, it's just happening. So sometimes it's really useful to spend a little time just with not not saying, oh, car, or motorcycle, bird, not in that way, but just being aware that sound is that sounds are arising and being known. So it's nice to have ways that we can sort of pay attention to the rising of mindfulness. You know, mindfulness, you know, when it's there, it's good to have touch points, you could say, in, in our experience where we check in in that way. Because sometimes we can't connect with the breath. So it's good if we only have the breath as our only anchor and for some reason it's just not, we're not able to connect with it, it's good to have something else we can do at that time. So is that clear? Does that answer your question? 